All right, good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. God bless you for being early and on time uh, this week. It's, a, it's an awfully easy week to just decide to stay home from church, isn't it? And if you are at home and you decided to stay home, we love you too, and God will bless you also in the comfort of your own home. So anyway, with that said, kids, you guys are dismissed, elementary kids, and then the youth group, the junior high, middle, what do they call it now, middle school, sixth grade to eighth grade, and then ninth grade to middle school? You guys are out of here. Whatever grade you are, you're out of here. So get out of here in Jesus' name. So just a quick update. Um, thank you so much to all of you who have given uh, this past week uh, to support uh, the work that's being done in, uh, in Ukraine. As I mentioned, we're partnering, partnering with the Calvary Global Network. They have a special relief fund set up, and they have folks that are you know, pastors that are there in country that are still serving, and they have lots of churches in the surrounding countries who are helping just with the efforts and taking care of all the refugees. Um, maybe in the in the e-bulletin this coming Wednesday, I'll try to post some links for some of the little video updates that you can watch. Um, just on a personal note, uh, great news, um, uh, Jana's mom, is here now, she arrived yesterday here, so she is safely in the United States and at their home. Understandably, she's not here with us this morning, but maybe next week we'll get to meet her. And, um, and, so, and Vlad's mom, who chose to stay there in Ukraine, I guess the cell service has been a little bit spotty lately, but he did hear from her just this morning, and she's well and everyone is well. And uh, next week, maybe we can get um, Vlad to give us another quick update just on the, the news from home. So with that said, uh, turn to Joshua chapter 9. We're just going to continue right through our study through the book of Joshua. If you don't have a Bible, you might uh, want one. Uh, we're going to go through these verses. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we'll have one of the guys uh, bring one to you. Uh, but before we jump in, uh, let's just pray and ask the Lord to, uh, to bless his word this morning uh, as he does. So, Father, we thank you so much for today, Lord, and we thank you for, Lord, just the, the privilege of gathering here together, Lord, just in comfort and in ease, Lord, with all distractions removed so that we can just be focused uh, upon you this morning. Lord, we do pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, Lord, and especially, of course, in Ukraine, Lord, who uh, aren't in such comfortable uh, circumstances and comfortable surroundings. And so, uh, as Susie prayed, Lord, we just agree with those prayers that you would uh, just be working on their behalf, Lord. Show yourself strong on their behalf, Lord, as you provide uh, protection, Lord, and uh, just thwart uh, the evil that uh, that the enemy's trying to do there. So we pray that you'd protect and care for the believers there, especially, Lord. Um, as we go to your word this morning, Lord, we pray that you would bless our time, Lord, and that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church. Uh, we pray that you would be our teacher this morning, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Joshua chapter Nine, And you remember that starting just a few weeks ago, we uh, sort of started out into what we said was a brand new section in the book of Joshua. So here they are now miraculously across 
the Jordan River. They're in the promised land now. And we see the children of Israel now really beginning this, uh, the conquest of the promised land, right? The conquest of Canaan. And they were taking this, this country one city at a time. Beginning first, we saw with the taking of Jericho. Of course, as the Lord just supernaturally directed them uh, and provided them with what is their first sort of miraculous military victory. But no sooner had that happened than in the very next chapter, we watched as they kind of rushed ahead in their overconfidence and their prayerlessness and unknowingly stymied by sin that had been brought into the camp. We watched as they were defeated by that little heap of a town, remember, called Ai up in the hills. And then we watched Joshua work, right, to prepare his people to be able to move forward from that failure. And then just last week, we watched as they now started again, really moving forward in victory. They were listening to the Lord and they were obeying the strategy of the Lord and once again, getting victory from the Lord over that same city. And then when we left off last time, remember it, we saw that sort of beautiful picture as the children of Israel went on what we called a spiritual pilgrimage. Remember, they marched 30 miles to the north up to where Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim were. And we saw that they went there to offer sacrifices and to engage in the reading of the law to all the people just as it had been prescribed in the law that they do. And it was this wonderful, really just a reaffirming of the covenant. And we see all the people pledging collectively to keep the word of God really at the center of their lives corporately and, and nationally as a people. And now as we turn the page into what is kind of the next episode in chapter nine, we're gonna see that what so often happens after this kind of you know, spiritual advance in our own lives, we're gonna see what happens when our enemy goes on offense. And we're gonna find that the enemies of the children of Israel are gonna continue their opposition against Israel, and they're gonna use a couple of specific strategies in order to do that. So look what it says in verse one of Joshua chapter nine. It says that it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, when they heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. Now, some of you might remember back just after that first victory at Jericho, we read, it, our text had told us in chapter six, verse 27, that the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout all the country. So as a result of that, and then with that subsequent victory there at Ai, we see that all the kings of the entire country were all afraid together. 
right, up and down the entire land in the hills right there in the center and in the, the lowland, which would have been kind of the, the western sections there, and all along the coast spreading all the way up to Lebanon, right? Here we see listed six different nations all throughout the land. Now, understand that all of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan were loosely considered to be Canaanites, right? And they're all wicked, idolatrous peoples, all of whom were descended from Noah's grandson, Canaan, who was a son of Ham. Now, all of these peoples lived in these, you know, little tribes that were divided into kind of these little nations, like city-states almost. They usually fought together with one another about who knows what, but now, as we see God's people arriving and beginning to advance, we see all of these petty kings are now uniting to oppose Israel. So we have truces being declared in these tribal wars. We have deadly enemies that were suddenly fast friends. And isn't it funny how Christianity sometimes can make strange bedfellows out of people who come together with nothing else in common except to try to oppose the work that the Lord is doing. And so these verses, the first couple verses here, they really sort of set the stage for what will be the whole southern and then the northern campaigns in the conquest of the land. And we're going to see those in chapters 10 and 11. But for now, we simply see that this opposition is amassing quickly right there on the horizon. And make no mistake in your own life as a Christian that every victory that we win in our spiritual life is basically an invitation for a full-scale attack from the enemy of our souls, who of course is Satan. Right? Every time we step into that next experience of blessing, we are on the verge of another assault. Right? Our blessings and our battles always go side by side. And in terms of the different strategies that Satan employs, this one obviously is a classic example of a full frontal attack, right? A full frontal assault here as these armies were going to try to advance together to defeat Israel on the battlefield in head-to-head, hand-to-hand combat. Right? It's just like Peter promised in 1 Peter chapter 5 where he said that your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, right? seeking whom he may devour. Right? We know that he's coming, we see him coming, and when he comes, he's bringing everything all at once. Those times in our lives when it seems like we're getting hit from multiple assaults at the same time. And so often, it can be so overwhelming. And yet, here's the really interesting thing about the God that we serve. Here are these kings, right? They're all uniting to fight against God, right? They want to bring the fight to the people of God. They're fighting against the plan of God. And yet, as they're doing this, right, as they're all uniting together... What they're really doing is they're actually just making it even easier for the children of Israel to defeat them all. Because it would have been much harder 
for them to go from one city to the next city and then to the next city when you can just take on all six of them out in a field, out in the open, and go ahead and just defeat all of them there. You know, it says of the Lord in Psalm 76, verse 10, it's one of my very favorite verses. It says, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. In other words, God will make even the ways of the wicked work out to bring praise to him, right, and to his purposes for his children. In other words, they can have their plans, but God has his plans. Amen? And so those people who might come against you, even when it seems like they're uniting together, right, to come for you, they have their ideas, the things they think they're going to do to try to oppose the things of God. And yet at that very same time, God says, listen, none of that scares me in the least. God says, by the time I get done with this whole thing, you're going to see I'm going to make all of those things that they meant for evil, I'm going to turn them all around against those same people. And that's exactly what we'll see that he does in this situation. It's what we've so often seen him do even in our own lives. So just a quick encouragement as we start out this morning. Don't be afraid when the six wicked kings of Canaan seem to be uniting to come against you because it may simply be that the Lord is preparing them for you to defeat them all in one whopping victory. But as I said, that's a story for a different day because as we continue on today in our text, what we see next is that not all of the enemies of Israel wanted to, to unite to fight in this full frontal attack against Israel. Look what it says in verses three through six. It says, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua, uh, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. So they think, look, we, we can't defeat these guys, so we better try to make peace with these guys. So the Gibeonites, I think, are a little bit smarter than all the rest of the other ites, right? Gibeon was located in the hill country just about six miles northwest of Jerusalem, about the same distance southwest of little Ai, which meant that they would be logically the very next city that Joshua would set out to conquer strategically, and they knew it. So here they concoct this kind of an ingenious scheme to try to trick the Israelites into making a treaty with them. Now, we might ask, why didn't they just come and say, hey, Joshua, make a treaty with us? Well, because they knew that he couldn't do that. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God's law stated that Israel had to completely destroy 
all of the cities there in Canaan. And it goes on to say that if after their initial conquest of the promised land, when that was fully done, if Israel became involved in some other conflicts, that they then could offer peace to other cities as long as those cities were outside of the land. So here's the highlights of that text. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, in verse 10, it says, when you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of those nations, but of the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. So God's word was clear, right? And the Gibeonites, who we're going to see in just a couple of verses, they're part of the Hivites, the Gibeonites knew exactly what this said. Now, how did they know? Well, the Bible doesn't say for sure how they knew, and yet I expect that they knew because they probably had just heard those same very verses that I just read. They had just heard those verses read aloud to all of the people of Israel as they as assembled there at the end of the last chapter. Remember, we had that two and a half million people standing there between these two mountains. No doubt many of their pagan neighbors, like the Gibeonites, had sent spies, right, trying to discern what in the world is happening with these people. And the spies had probably come back having very, having very clearly overheard this clear command from the Lord to his people that they would completely wipe all of these nations from the face of the earth. Understand this, our enemy knows the Bible, right? Satan has been studying it studiously since the beginning of time. And he knows just how he can twist it. He knows just how he can use it even to bring attack against us, just like the Gibeonites do here. Right? They knew they didn't have any chance at all to defeat God's people in a full frontal assault. They knew they couldn't broker a treaty with them openly and honestly. So they realized very quickly they needed to come against them in a different way, right? using a different device. Not with that full frontal assault, but instead employing a much more subtle strategy of deception. Right? They needed to come against them through deception to bring in compromise. Again, it says there in verse 4, notice it says that they worked craftily. And if you read the old King James, I like it, it says they did work wilily. Say that ten times fast, right? They did work wilily. But that word wilily... Doesn't it make us think of Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul says that we're to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil? Because in the war that he wages against us, 
Satan is certainly wily indeed, right? He employs trickery and he uses deception at every turn. Jesus, of course, said that Satan is a liar and that he's the father of it. And so often he's working in these subtle ways and using these subtle lies just first of all to get us to question God's commands, ultimately to get us to to compromise our conviction and then to make these alliances or, or even just to make these kind of allowances, if you will, with the ungodly world around us and with the ungodly people around us instead of going ahead and destroying any influence they would have over our lives. The New Testament authors are very, very clear in regards to what we're to do. Again, it says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has stated, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, most of you know this was Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Right? The church at Corinth, of course, had allowed all kinds of compromise into their church. We see division and there's these disagreements, there's drunkenness, there's sexual sin, there's all kinds of immorality and idolatry. There was a real kind of a progressive spirit to their faith. And they looked at so much of this and actually they applauded themselves for how tolerant they were about all these things that were going on. Now, if that doesn't sound familiar, right? So so none of this is a new problem amongst God's people while we're here in this world. Our enemies trying to draw us in craftily and wilily, right? Through this very subtle deception into these kinds of unholy alliances that create carnality within the church and, of course, then as a result in our lives. And notice, in fact, that this kind of strategic, subtle deception from the enemy came even before that full frontal attack by the enemy. Because Satan knows that a spirit-filled Christian is not going to be trapped or taken surprise by an obvious full frontal attack. So he comes in in these more sneaky, these more subtles, and unfortunately, these more successful ways to try to trip us up and to try to weigh us down. But, praise the Lord, right? he's given us ways that we can discern and that we can really defeat even these subtle advances of the enemy. Because look what we read next. So the Gibeonites had just said to Joshua, look, we're not any of these bad people here in the land that God called you to wipe out. We come from far away, very far away, right? You're safe with us. It says in verse 7, Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, so those are the Gibeonites, they said, well, perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? 
But they said to Joshua, oh, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? Joshua says, look, just be straight with me, right? I think Joshua knows something doesn't seem right, right? Something just isn't sitting right. And so he presses this guy, these guys, to just get at what is right. Now, I don't mean to spoil the story for you if you didn't read ahead, but in just a few verses, Joshua is about to be fully deceived. He's about to fall for the lie. He's going to get conned by this enemy. And I'm sure that you're just like me, but I've been conned a few times in my life by the enemy. And I don't know that I've ever been conned except that I had this hesitation somewhere in the process of the con. Where you look and you just kind of go, you know what, something doesn't feel right here. And so here's Joshua hesitating. And this is such a great lesson for us in our Christian lives because Joshua, Joshua is hesitating because he has lost his peace. It's because when, when God's enemies go on the offense, this is God's gift of discernment that he gives to us. And one of the very most important verses for us, I think, in this area of discernment in our life as Christians, it's Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Paul simply says this. He says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And the word for rule there is the word that we would literally translate as umpire. So what does an umpire do? Well, of course, an umpire makes a call whether someone is safe or whether someone is out. So we're to let the peace of God umpire in our hearts because we have this beautiful internal witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives through the presence of his peace in our lives. That tells us whether something is safe or whether something needs to be kind of called out in our lives. And Joshua here is just about to go against that internal peace that he has. So never, ever, ever go against that sense of peace when you're making decisions. Because every time we do this, we make a mistake. Because one of the ways, probably the primary way that the Lord speaks to us and really communicates his will to us is through the presence or the absence of that peace. And the idea, of course, is that as we come up to those forks in the road, right, those decision places in our lives, God will often give us a greater sense of peace in my life concerning the direction that he wants us to go. Because as Christians, we should always be walking in peace, right? There's this constant state of peace that comes in our hearts provided to us by the Holy Spirit as we're simply enjoying that relationship with the Lord and as we're walking in the things of the Lord and walking in obedience to the Lord. And so when we come to those questions and the thought of one path provides us with that sense of peace, but the possibility of the other path gives us more so a sense of pause, right? It gives us sort of an uneasiness or kind of a, a disquiet, if you will, in our souls. It's kind of this, 
we're cautious or we're apprehensive about going that next step in that direction. It's almost like a warning sign that danger is near. And you've maybe heard some people in the past call it a check in their spirit. Now, those words aren't necessarily found in the Bible, but I think it's a pretty good description because that's the Holy Spirit throwing up a stop sign, right? He's checking us so that we'll check in with him about this thing that we're doing so often so that he can probably keep us from actually doing it. That's what he's trying to do here with Joshua. But what we're going to see is Joshua is about to blow right through that stop sign. He's going to bust that peace. He's going to make this terrible decision. And so this is a critical thing for us to realize in our lives because I can tell you today that every time I have personally gone against that peace, it has always ended up being the wrong decision. That peace of God is, is a great way, again, it's probably one of the greatest ways that God speaks to us. And again, our enemy knows this. Because notice next, the way that he now works even more craftily Right, even more wilily as he seeks to have us override that peace. So Joshua said, look, this just doesn't seem right. Where did you guys say you came from? So they said to him in verse 9, from a very far country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Astaroth. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, take provisions with you for the journey and go meet with them, and say to them, we are your servants, now therefore make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which were filled new, and see they are torn. And these our garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. So do you notice the way these guys just keep talking, right? And the more they talk, the more convincing the story sounds. But does it really? So when our enemy goes on offense, right, and starts to use this more subtle strategy of deception, understand that the deception is very often hidden in the details. Now, to me, when I read this, they're gone, right? I have to say, this sounds a lot like when our kids used to come up with some kind of story to cover over something they didn't want us to find out about. Right? And it's just filled with too much detail and too much evidence. It's way too tight of a defense. Really, the cookies were just sitting there in the canister on the top behind the crack, you know, and I just had, right? And the difficulty is, as followers of Jesus, I think there comes a point when we can get too mired down and too tripped up in all the details instead of just continuing to trust in that gift of discernment that God's given us, right? Trusting in the presence of that perfect peace to keep us and, and to guard our hearts. 
isn't it true that we usually know what it is the Lord really would have us to do? And yet what happens is sometimes there's just too many details, there's too many considerations, there's too many conversations, and then at some point things are just too confusing and they just sort of open the door up wider for us to walk right into deception. Notice here also on top of all of this, notice the way the Gibeonites throw in a little God talk. Right? They say, we've heard how mighty your God is. We've heard how famous your God is. They say, we've come because of the name of the Lord your God. These guys are good, right? Because the funny thing about us as Christians, and the enemy knows it, is that if you're dealing with a Christian, just throw a little God talk in, and immediately they'll drop their guard. You just flatter their God a little, maybe flatter them in their relationship with God, talk about their God a little bit, and at this point now you've got them 80% set up to completely fleece them. And then you can start, you know, continue very convincingly and start strategically kind of laying on all of these details. Notice how they only mention some of the past works of God. They mention the works of God in Egypt, the works of God done on the other side of the river, because if they had really been from far away, then they wouldn't have known over the recent victories over Jericho and Ai, which happened just within the last few weeks. So these guys are expertly and they are selectively kind of laying on the details all the while they're repeatedly kind of leaning on this physical evidence, right? They're creating this whole deception. Look at our moldy bread and our holy clothes and our worn out shoes. And then it says in verse 14, then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And we say, ah, Joshua, right? I mean, we just want to pull our hair out over this. But now the deal was done, the deception was successful, the covenant was made. Understand that for the first time now in the record since their arrival here in this land that God had given to them, the children of Israel were standing here at Gilgal, right? They're in the camp of Israel, they're on this holy ground, and they had just made a solemn agreement with the very enemy that the Lord had told them clearly that they had to destroy completely. And of course, we're told clearly why this happened. Look again at the end of verse 14. It was because they did not ask counsel of the Lord. But instead, what does it say at the beginning of that verse? It said that the men of Israel took some of their provisions, right? The, the dry, moldy bread and the, the torn wineskins. And the, the sense of the text isn't that they took the provisions away from these guys but that they took stock of them. Some translations say that they sampled them or they examined them, and then they made their decision. 
right? So they looked and they made their decision on the basis only of looking at the physical evidence that was in front of them and believing the story which had been told to them because it all seemed to line up very logically for them. Instead of checking in with the Lord for his direction and his discernment. Because the implication here is that if they had simply just asked the Lord, if they just simply said, Lord, something seems fishy here. We've got this kind of check in our spirits. What in the world is going on here? If they had just done that, the implication is that God would have immediately exposed that this was a con. But instead, they looked at it and they reasoned through it and they said, look, there's no need to even pray about this. This is obviously true. I mean, look at all of this evidence. But the reality is not everything is as it seems in this fallen world. And in fact, most everything I would say is just not as it seems in this fallen world. And as Christians, we can look at something from every angle in the physical and be completely fooled. That's how good the devil is. Right? That's how good the world is at deceiving people. But there's a God who sees everything. And he sees it so very clearly because he sees it in the spiritual realm. He sees everything that's going on around this whole thing. There's nothing that he doesn't know. And the Bible says that he is always eager to share his insights with us if we would just ask him. All right, doesn't James promise us that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it what? It will be given to him. So he promises to give it, but we just don't ask for it because we think we can handle it and we think we can figure it all out just on the basis of common sense. I mean, anybody could look at this same situation and say, God, there's no need to talk to you about it because I, I mean, you see the same bread that I see, right? You see the same sandals that I see. I mean, you see the same wineskins I'm looking at. You see the same clothes. I mean, all you really need here is a little bit of common sense, right? But here's the problem with common sense is that common sense is not nearly as common as it is reported to be, right? The other problem with common sense is that it is so very easily fooled. And that's the danger of common sense. Because when you stop even just for a second and you really think it through, even their story and all of their evidence and all of their details didn't really make as much sense as it seemed to make, right? Just think about it for a second, because if these men were truly ambassadors from a different nation, and they'd been sent with the power to broker a treaty with another nation, they would have surely had better credentials, right? They would have had adequate supplies for this kind of an official sort of a, a, a journey. They would have had servants, they would have had bakers who would have been baking fresh bread every day along the way. They certainly would have had new clothes to wear, right, for an official kind of a, an audience like this so they could make the best impression that they could possibly make. And if Joshua and his elders had just prayed, then the Lord surely would have shown him that these things just really didn't 
line up the way that they seem to. And this is why I love what Paul wrote after he talked in that whole area of spiritual warfare against the devil, right? Ephesians chapter 6, he finishes describing all of these different weapons of our warfare, right? All of this equipment that makes up our warfare, this armor in the spiritual battle, and he closes that out by then emphasizing the importance of prayer. Right, so he sets out, he lists the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and that mighty sword of the spirit, which he says is the word of God. And then he says in verse 18, he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So there's all of that stuff needs to be all wrapped up and needs to be bathed in this earnest, constant, persevering kind of prayer. And I think only God knows how many disastrous decisions are made by God's people because of a failure to simply pray to simply run that situation by him or to simply seek his wisdom in these situations, even in situations, right, where he's already given us a sense that something is just not right here. And yet there's still an absence of prayer. And we blow right past that umpire of peace who's trying to call something out Right? He's trying to say, this is not good. This is, this is a, a ball or this is a strike or I don't know which one it would be. It would, don't, don't swing at it, he says. Right, But we rely instead on what we think we understand because of what we can see. And, and can I just encourage us all as clearly as I can, never, never, never trust your own judgment in anything ever. Could I be clearer, right, right? Never, never, never trust your own judgment in anything ever. When common sense says one thing, pray it through before you do anything. Right, when all of these different voices are telling you that you need to rush to some kind of a decision, right? When the Gibeonites are standing there right in front of you and they're waiting for an answer, stand still, stand fast until you have heard clearly from heaven. And if you can't wait for that peace of God to return to your heart, then don't make a move. Don't dare make the wrong decision. Be strong enough, be brave enough, be humble enough to wait on God until you have that perfect sense of peace restored by him. Even when the waiting doesn't seem to make any sense at the time. And even if your circumstances are miserable as you wait. But instead, like Paul says to the Philippians, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, he says, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And there are those times when we say, you know, I don't know why I have such a peace about this situation, 
because it clearly seems like I should be freaking out right now. Right? It seems like I'm missing out or, or whatever it is. I just don't understand why it is that I'm so peaceful about this. But you're so peaceful about that because that peace came from God. Remember, it's, it's not the peace that comes from understanding. It's the peace that surpasses understanding. And, and here's another great verse for so many Christians. It's a life verse Right for a lot of Christians, Proverbs chapter 3, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. And this proverb is such a powerful picture because the word that's translated trust there in Proverbs 3, 5, it literally means to lie helpless and to lie face down. And the picture is like it's a servant waiting for the next command out of the master's mouth, right? Ready to obey. Or, or it's sort of like a defeated soldier who's laying there face down on the ground at the mercy of and completely yielding himself to this conquering general. That's the way we're to wait on the Lord for his direction. And here Joshua and the men of Israel did exactly the opposite of that. They did what we often do, right? They leaned on their own understanding, which by the way is a lot like leaning on a broken crutch, right? And they quickly are about to now get a real understanding of just how wrong their own understanding had actually been. Look at verse 16. It says it happened at the end of 3 days after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Well, that sure didn't take long, right, for the truth to come to light. Verse 17, then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Cherephah, Beroth, and Kirjath-Jerim. So here's Israel, right, outfitted, headed out probably on their next military campaign, they're set to start conquering all of these cities in the south. Lo and behold, what do they find? Here are those very same guys that they had just made this covenant with. So now they've really got to be mad. They say, look, we should really let these guys have it now because of the way they tricked us. But, it says in verse 18, the children of Israel did not attack them, because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, and all the congregation then complained against the rulers. So probably because the rulers had allowed themselves to be tricked, possibly, some suggest, because the people realized they were about to lose out on the spoils from all of those cities, right? No small amount of loot. So they're saying, look, let's take these guys out, the people cry out. Verse 19, it says, then all the rulers said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. So to their credit... Here, Joshua and the other men of Israel didn't add another sin 
of wiping out the Gibeonites on top of their initial sin of making an oath without seeking the Lord. So to their harm, they honor their word, they honor this covenant that they'd made, even though they knew full well that they'd been tricked into making it. And this was absolutely the right thing for them to do. Now, one of the reasons we know it's the right thing for them to do, right, to stick with their word, even though they knew it was gonna cost them something to do it, we know this was the right call because later on, Nearly 400 years later on, when King Saul rises up as the first king over all of Israel, he attempts to destroy the Gibeonites, right, to completely wipe them out. And the Lord is very displeased with that move and, of course, with King Saul. And so he, the Lord threatens to bring judgment down upon the children of Israel, even at the beginning of David's reign in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And it's all a direct result of Saul breaking this covenant. So what they're doing here is the right thing. In Psalm 15, which is a Psalm of David, and it, it details the character of a person who can stand before the Lord. David writes this, but he honors those who fear the Lord and he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So if you're here this morning and you have already made your mistake and you've lost your battle and maybe you've been deceived by your enemy, right? Maybe you've been tricked by the Gibeonites and you find yourself in some sort of a miserable situation or a miserable difficulty, you cannot make that an excuse for now breaking your word. The, the, the Lord calls us to be people of principle and to be people of integrity, right? Honoring our word and then trusting then that the Lord will honor us for honoring our word. And then just entrusting the whole situation to him and to his grace. Look what it says in verse 21. It says that the rulers said to them, let them live, but... Let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. So Joshua knew he couldn't rightly kill the Gibeonites, but he also knew that he instead could control the Gibeonites and make them into perpetual workers, right? Into woodcutters and into water carriers. So look what he does next. Look at verse 22. It says, then Joshua called for them. And he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you, and you dwell near us? Now therefore you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So the Gibeonites would spend the rest of their lives and all of the lives of their children's lives serving the Israelites in these menial ways, right? Cutting wood for the sacrificial fires of the tabernacle, carrying the water that was used in its service. And so verse 24, they answered Joshua and said, because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses 
to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. Notice there's no complaint from the Gibeonites. They say, hey, at least we're alive, right? Wood cutting, water carrying, so be it. Bring it on. And yet it's at least a little bit ironic that the very thing that the Gibeonites hoped to keep, they had actually lost, right? They wanted to remain free men, and yet in the end, their deception brought nothing but slavery. And what we're going to see, though, as we finish up is that their service, even their slavery, was ultimately going to be a great blessing both to the Israelites and to the Gibeonites because we're going to see that the Lord is still working even through Joshua's failure to seek his wisdom and his will. So Joshua says, look, you guys are going to live, but you're going to serve. And so it says in verse 26, so he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day, Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Now, it doesn't tell us specifically that Joshua sought the Lord for this plan, and yet I have to assume that he did for a couple of reasons. First of all, he just realized how badly he had failed because he hadn't sought the Lord, which tends, as we all know, to make us seek the Lord even more, right? At least for a minute. But second of all, and I think most of all, because this plan is wonderfully brilliant and I think divinely inspired. Because what Joshua does here, here are these wicked, pagan, these wicked pagan people from this land, the very people that God had, cho had called them to wipe out, right? Wipe them out to prevent even the possibility of them bringing their wickedness and their idolatry and their immoral pagan influence among God's people and of corrupting God's people. And so Joshua says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep them busy. We're going to keep them busy cutting wood and carrying water for the tabernacle. In other words, we're going to keep them busy serving like this as close to the tabernacle as we can, as close eventually to the temple as we can, so that we become an influence over them for good and they do not become an influence over us for evil. And the wonderful thing about this whole thing, again, it's all God's grace. God is so gracious, right, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the really interesting thing historically is that the Gibeonites never, in the whole story of the children of Israel, they never even attempted to, let alone were they successful in, drawing the children of Israel away from the worship of the Lord and dragging them down into idolatry. In fact, by the time we get to 2 Chronicles chapter 1, during the time of the reign of King Solomon, we see that the tabernacle itself was set up here at Gibeon. 
Right? We see still later that some of the Gibeonites returned with Nehemiah after the Babylonian captivity, and they are specifically named as helping him to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. In other words, God just overwhelmed this entire thing with his grace. And he has just covered over, deeply covered over this blunder that Joshua and the other elders of Israel has made. He is still able to turn a curse into a blessing. Now, the take home for us today is not that we should continue in sin that grace may abound, okay? Paul said certainly not to that option. But the take home for us is that this text is this clear warning for us against entangling ourselves in these ungodly alliances that have this potential to draw us into compromise and to draw us into disobedience. And for some of us, it may be a certain friendship it may be a romantic relationship. It may be some ungodly activity, maybe even a secret sin. It may be a little hobby. It may be something that seems seemingly harmless, except for that little check you have in your spirit about it. And I think it's such an important reminder that the most dangerous kind of opposition that we face is when the devil comes with this kind of subtlety. He comes with this desire to deceive us. He comes saying, you know, just look at my bags and look at my water jug and look at my holy sandals, right? All of it looks perfectly harmless. It looks like, hey, what could possibly be the problem? How much harm could this possibly do to me? And yet, how many Christians have found out that the things which seemed not to matter very much at the time, those have been the very things that have caused the most destruction in their lives? Because this is where our enemy gets very, very, very dangerous. Because it's in exactly this kind of compromise that we allow for into our lives or that we make these alliances with, right, for our lives, they will determine for many of us just how rich we actually will become spiritually. You know, how many of God's precious promises we're really gonna be able to possess that are given to us in the New Testament because even as we see that God poured out his grace in this sticky situation, and he does indeed do that, we're also going to see that it complicates life in a big way for the children of Israel. But, right, and that's a but with a capital B, right? If you are here this morning, and perhaps your life has already been complicated by some of these compromises that maybe you've made in the past with some Gibeonites, can I encourage you, first of all, the Lord has already forgiven you, right? If you have asked him to forgive you, he has forgiven you, even if you haven't forgiven yourself. And what the Lord wants to do, even this morning, the Lord wants to take those Gibeonites and he wants to make woodcutters and he wants to make water carriers out of them in your life. Let them bring the fire to the altar in your life and in your heart. 
you know, as you realize the overwhelming power of God's grace and how he has redeemed that situation. Let those Gibeonites make the cleansing water of God's word flow richly and flow powerfully through your life. Let the woodcutters and the water carriers in your life remind you constantly of the power of the Holy Spirit and how effective that has been in your life. Right? Let your failures serve you. Demand that they serve you. And you may feel like you've, you know, you've sinned against the light because you knew better than to do what you did. You may feel like God can never use you or that you can never do anything with your life. You may feel that you can't ever enter fully into all that God has for you. But can I tell you, because I love you, you're wrong. You are dead wrong. You are mistaken because there isn't anything that God delights in more than to take those broken pieces in your life, maybe those pieces even that you've destroyed through your own rebellion or through your own compromise or through these alliances that you've made as you allowed these Gibeonites into your life. He wants to take all of those things and he wants to turn them around to serve you for the rest of your life. He wants to let them do the heavy lifting. Let them be the woodcutters. Let them be the, the water carriers in your life as you remember the way that he's redeemed this situation. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for the tremendous grace that you have for us. Lord, we thank you for uh, the mercy that you extend to us. Lord, we do thank you that you're able to redeem, Lord, even those uh, failures, Lord, those uh, unholy alliances that we've made, Lord, where we've, uh, whether knowingly or unknowingly, Lord, we've been deceived, uh, Lord, into, into making compromise. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help to redeem any of those situations in our lives. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who may be struggling under that kind of condemnation. Lord, I pray that they would be free from that even today. Lord, that they would just simply allow that to be covered over, Lord, and to be buried in your grace. And um, We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand up and let's, uh, let's worship the Lord together this morning.